And I would like you to turn to the the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Um, We are coming, as you well know, we are coming up on Christmas. It is soon going to be here, just a few more days. And some people are really excited about Christmas. Some are a little bit indifferent about it. You know, not that big of a deal. But but it's a very big deal to every person who is a follower of Jesus Christ because it is that time of year when we celebrate again the arrival of Jesus Christ. He was always was. He always will be. But it, it, he arrived there in that scene. The Bible records his birth. Jesus' birth is recorded in two of the four Gospels. It is recorded in the books of Matthew and Luke. Now, Luke's Gospel, let me just explain here, Luke's Gospel tells us the most about the persons surrounding Jesus' birth. So, if you want a, a, a quite comprehensive account of, of, uh, of Jesus' birth, go to Luke. And he tells us a great deal. Um, he tells us about a lot of the people involved. People like, of course, Mary and Joseph. He records them. And they were, of course, essential in, the, in, the whole, in that whole incarnation story. Luke also records how the angels sent by God, angels are by definition messengers of God, how angels, angels announced Jesus' birth and then shepherds, to whom it was announced, they came and they worshiped Jesus at his birth. And then how days later, Luke also records how a man named Simeon had been waiting for Jesus and a woman named Anna praised Jesus. And so all of these, even though some were some days later and in other cases some days earlier, uh, they're all surrounding this story, this incarnation, this birth story, true story, of course, of Jesus Christ. But it's Matthew who records some things that Luke did not. For example, he records the Magi or the wise men. Uh, These wise men were directed by a star and uh, also by scripture to worship Jesus. They came, the Bible tells us, they came um, probably not, not on the night in which Jesus was born, but some point later. Their names are get, never given. We don't know how many magi there were, but, but, but they came. Uh, Matthew records that. But Jesus is always at the center. Regardless of whether you're looking at the Matthew account or the Luke account, Jesus is always at the center, as he should be. He was the focus of his parents, his earthly parents. He was the focus of angels. He was the focus of shepherds and wise men and people at the temple later and distant relatives of his mother before. There's one more person connected to Jesus' birth that is recorded, and we're going to read it here in a moment. There was also a king named Herod, who wanted to kill Jesus. Verse 1 of, uh, verse 1 of, not Luke's account, but Matthew's account, verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2 reads this way, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. We have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. I want you to see that. Verse 3, it says, When King Herod 
heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where this where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi, or the wise men, secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold of incense and of myrrh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to, to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now that's the end of the story of the Magi, but it continues on. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Please notice that. The end of verse 13 Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. When he stayed where he stayed until the death of Herod and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod, verse uh, 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had uh, learned from the Magi. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will speak to us through this portion of Scripture, Lord, that many of us know so well, and yet there are some things here that you want to speak to us, to our hearts, to our lives, to where we live right now. I ask, Lord Jesus, that by your Holy Spirit you would do what I could never do, and that is to pierce a heart. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this account. Thank you that by your plan, your Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write these words and we have them before us. May we be faithful with them in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 13 again says, an angel told Joseph, Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. I want you to see that. Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. It, that, that, that statement there, that verse seems kind of out of place here. Uh, it, it clashes with the other accounts. It, 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 it doesn't counter them, but it clashes with the other accounts. It, it clashes with, with the, the rest of the story here in, in Matthew. It, 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 it goes against, in a sense, the, the other story there in the Gospel of Luke. Because there in those other places you will find so many people who adored Jesus, who came to worship Jesus, who came to praise Jesus, and you have one person who wanted to kill him. It's just such a contrast, it's such a, a clashing of personalities. Did you know that in, in, in all of the Christmas programs that I've ever seen, I've never seen somebody dressed as Herod. That, uh, it might have happened, you just never see it. 
he wouldn't be welcome. I mean, that would be the point when Herod comes up that everyone was supposed to go boo because he's the bad guy. He's the villain here. He's the ultimate villain here. Of course, there's a greater villain behind this. His name is Satan. But Herod is the villain here. Just to get a fuller picture on this, there's some things that you need to understand about Herod. First of all, Herod was a puppet king whose strings were held by Caesar. Caesar was Rome's emperor, and at this time, Judea is a conquered Roman territory. So he's, he's really pulled around by, if Caesar says jump, Herod says absolutely how high. Another thing that you need to know about Herod is that he, he was only nominally Jewish. He really had no legitimate right to the throne, even the puppet throne of Judea. Um, he was not descended from King David, so he had no royal blood, if you will, in him. And there's one more thing that you need to know about Herod, and that is that Herod was absolutely off the charts evil. He was brutal. He was cruel in the extreme. History records, not the Bible, but history records how Herod, or sometimes called Herod the Great or Herod the Builder because he built so many things. You've all, or maybe you've heard of Masada. This is the guy who, who built that hilltop fortress. Uh, you've heard of the Herodium, a large building still intact. He was the guy who, who built this. Uh, Herod the so-called great, Herod the so-called great had members of his own family executed. Among them, I think his second wife, he had her killed. Some of his, some of his children were strangled, and he allowed it to happen. This man was absolutely cruel, and the consolidation of power or the retaining of power meant everything to Herod. But it's here that we just read in those later verses, it's here where Herod's evil is really on, on full display. Uh, it says that he ordered here, it says that he ordered that every male child under the age of two in and around Bethlehem to be executed, to be killed, to be slaughtered. It's called the slaughter. We, we refer to it now as the slaughter of the innocents. What a horrible time that must have been. I, I really can't comprehend it. In fact, there's a part of me that doesn't even want to go there to think about the pain that those parents must have experienced as the Roman guards or the Jewish guards came in and began to kill these innocent children. This man was absolutely cruel. Herod figured, in doing this, Herod figured that if he killed all of those boys, he would just do this large dragnet, if you will, and he would just pull all of them in, kill them all, and in killing them all, he was certain to kill this one that the wise men referred to as the king of the Jews. Remember I said a moment ago, this was a man who, who was... Uh, who did not have a legitimate right to, a, to the throne. He, he was jerked around by Caesar, and so he's a man who probably has a lot of insecurities about his role, about his function, about his power, and any threat, even the possibility. It, it, it's like as soon as he heard the words, king of the Jews, that was it. He was going to do whatever he could to wipe out that possible threat. Herod, this is, I want you to get this point, Herod went 
to great lengths to destroy the one who threatened his position and his power. Herod went to and, and was willing to go to great lengths, be it his children, his wife, or some unnamed person referred to as the king of the Jews. He went to great lengths to destroy the one who could threaten his position and his power. I'll come back to that. I want you now in your minds just to fast forward about 30 years. Jesus is no longer, of course, now an infant in the manger. He's long since went from, from, from Bethlehem to Nazareth to Egypt back to Nazareth. He's, all of that is now history. Jesus is now in his public ministry. He's in the middle of his public ministry. And religious leaders, now a whole different group of people. Herod is long since gone. Now some of his descendants are on this puppet throne. But some of the Jewish leaders, some of the religious leaders were also threatened by him. John chapter 15 verse 18 says this, they tried all the harder to kill (coughs) Jesus. Now again, Herod's long since gone. This is not a matter of retaining the throne. (coughs) They weren't worried about that. Rather, these people were worried about losing their power, losing their control, losing their authority, losing their prestige, losing their influence on a group of people. And it says here, it's a whole different story, a whole different group of people, but it says here again, they tried all the harder to kill Jesus. Some similarities to that Matthew chapter 2 reference. John 7 verse 1, a few chapters later, it again says this, they were seeking to kill him. Now, this is again a different group of people, an entirely different group of people, and now they too are seeking to kill Jesus. Now you think about this. This is the one who who was born under miraculous circumstances, who was raised in virtual obscurity. We know almost nothing about his growing up years. We do know that he has never sinned. He's He's never injured anyone. He's never hurt them with his hands, with his words, with his actions. This is the one who is absolutely, entirely, spotlessly clean and free of sin but they want to kill him. This is the third time. At the beginning, it was just one person. And then it was a group of religious leaders. And then a little bit later, it was another group of religious leaders. Opposition to Jesus was growing. And others joined in to the point that John chapter 19, verse 6 tells us, the chief priests and their officials cried out, crucify him, crucify him. This is a familiar text perhaps to you. This is right before his crucifixion. There's a mob of people just a few days before, five days before, Jesus had come into Jerusalem and everyone was saying, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, they're excited. But now five days later, some more people are feeling threatened and it says here again, the chief priests and their officials cried out with their hands and with their voices, crucify him, crucify him. You can almost hear it. And here's the thing, they did crucify him. Back in Matthew chapter 2, only Herod wanted to destroy Jesus. He was the only one. All those wonderful people, you know, waiting for him, praying for him, longing for him, worshiping him, announcing him. One man wanted to kill him, but 
it was just Herod alone who felt threatened. But in time, others condemned him and others opposed him. They all opposed him because with him, they knew things would never be the same. Let me say that again. The people wanted to kill him. They wanted to silence him. They wanted to oppose him because they knew that with him, things could never be the same. That it was Jesus' presence and his authority and his power that were threats to their power. Jesus threatened their comfort and their way of life. They wanted to silence him. So if it takes killing him to do so, that's fine. But we will not take a threat to our power. We will not be threatened by our way of life, or threatened by him to take away our way of life. Last, uh, last week, there was a manger up here, a rudimentary feed bunk, symbolic of the one that Jesus was placed in when he was born. Um, the image of Jesus in a manger is so non-threatening Think about that. No one would ever come upon a baby, the Bible says, wrapped in soft cloth and uh, placed in a, a mattress of straw in a manger or maybe hay in a manger. No one would ever come at that, look at that and go, whoo, that's spooky. <laughs> wow, that's a threat. It's a non-threatening image. But when Jesus went on to say things that confounded the self-righteous, that became problematic. Later on, when he kicked over tables of people who were making fast money under the guise of religion, that was bothersome. By the way, that happened between the time that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and the time that they said, crucify him. That happened. He kicked over. He actually cleared the temple twice. One of those was in between those two events. When Jesus told religious leaders, when he looked at them, stood before him, and not with a red face and a clenched fist, but with a very firm face and looking them in the eye, when he looked at them and said, you know what, you are, a, you are, you are like a bunch of whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. In other words, he was telling them, you know what, you look real pretty on the outside, you seem to have it together on the outside, but inside you represent death. You look like you have it together, he was essentially telling them. You look like you have it together, but inside you're dead. <laughs> Can you imagine, I mean, to be observing this and, and, and people would be starting to say things like, how dare you? We are the people who have it together. But he was a threat. He was an imminent threat to them. Put simply, Jesus shook things up. Wherever he went and whatever he did, he shook things up. Jesus knew this would happen. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to be, bring peace, but a sword. Now you go, how does that reconcile with Jesus being the prince of peace? 
Well, he was the Prince of Peace, but the peace that is referred to there is more of an inner peace. It is the peace that comes as we have a relationship with him. But Jesus also knew that with his coming, he was going to be a great polarizer. There were going to be people who were either going to be for him or against him. That he's going to come and what he is going to do, what he's going to say, what he is going to accomplish, and everything that he meant was going to create great conflict among people. Jesus knew that when he arrived on the scene, people were going to be for him or against him. Those who were for him would be very much for him, and those who were against him would be very much against him. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. He knew that his presence would shake things up and would continue to shake things up. By the way, it didn't stop then. It continues to this day. That is why today, 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 in 2017, when the message of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, when he changes people's lives, I mean really transforming people's lives, when his church does what he called us to be and to do in the world, the enemy will try to destroy it. I want you to get a hold of that. When Jesus begins to stir people and change people and transform people, when he comes into people's lives and and begins that wonderful change, suddenly the enemy takes notice and the enemy will do everything he can to destroy it. There is a cause and effect. When you come to Christ, hallelujah, greater is he who is within you than he, Satan, who is within this world. We stand upon this promise, but Satan will push back. When the message of Jesus is proclaimed, the enemy will try and destroy it. That is why this year, Christians were beheaded in Syria and imprisoned in North Korea. It's why churches were burned in the Sudan and pastors were killed in Egypt. It happened not simply for what they did. What they did was simply proclaim Jesus or declare their faith in Jesus. It happened not simply for what they did, but for the Savior they represent. Because when the kingdom of God advances, other kingdoms will fall. When the kingdom of God goes forth in power, wherever it might be and whatever culture it might happen, when the kingdom of God advances, other kingdoms will fall. They will will fight. They will not go without a fight. They will resist But when the kingdom of God advances, other kingdoms, there cannot be a coexistence. This is also why in our nation, in our culture, crosses are often removed from public lands and Bibles are frequently banned in public arenas and prayers are silenced and Christians are mocked. Again, not so much for what we do, and we have to be very careful what we do and how we do it, But more than that, I want you to understand that often the resistance that we face as followers of Jesus Christ, and I believe we'll see more of that going forward, it is not so much for what we do, but for whom we represent. If you identify with Jesus, Jesus himself said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. 
And when we identify with him, when we say, I'm with Jesus, we become a target. And here in this nation, in our nation, when his kingdom advances, other kingdoms are threatened and other kingdoms will fall. But I want you to be very careful with this. I've come to the point in this message where it's, it's, it's one of the real most important parts that I want you to hear. It is very easy to look at this in the big picture. It is very easy for us to look to far distant places where Christians are suffering, and being beheaded and burned alive and imprisoned and marginalized at the very least. It's easy to look at far different, distant places where Christians are suffering, and we can just as easily point to examples close up and nearby where biblical Christianity is resisted and attacked and overlook the possibility, stay with me, and overlook the possibility that you and I can also be a little bit like Herod. Let me explain. I don't mean that we're trying to kill Jesus. I'm not saying that if you were there in first century Judea and you heard from the wise men that there's the king of the Jews who's going to be at some point in the near future in Bethlehem, that you would say, yeah, here, let's go get him. I'm not implying that at all. I doubt that you would. I doubt that anybody then would have. Neither am I saying that we are demonstrating extreme acts of cruelty. I'm not saying that you would ever do anything like exactly what Herod did. But there are some things within Herod that, quite frankly, I have seen in me at times. I have found that we can oppose Jesus or oppose what he does when he threatens the way we live. When all of a sudden he is, is doing an amazing work in my life and he's stirring me up in ways that have never been stirred before <clears throat> and he identifies something in me that maybe has been there for a long time and maybe a nice, you know, put together little fortress in my life. And, and I say, well, don't touch that. can be a little bit like that, and I resist. It, 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 it may not be strong, it may be passive, but I can resist. He calls us to give of ourselves. I was talking with someone this morning, and he said how, how God called them to do something that never really sensed that before, and, 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 and he did it, and it's like, that's great, glory to God. He can do that. Do you know that if you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and you are his, he can do anything he wants with you? He can. He, he, he can say, I'm going to do something in you and through you that I've never done before and it's not going to be easy. He may not even say it's not going to be easy, it's just it's not going to be easy. But he can do whatever he wants with us. If he wants to use us in a particular way, even if it's outside of our experience, or what we perceive is our giftings, he can still do it. But he calls us to give of ourselves. But then suddenly, when he asks us to do so, and it's going to cost our time, 
or it's going to cost our convenience, and we can just kind of push back a little bit because I don't want that to happen. We feel like we're being threatened, or maybe our influence, or again, our time, our resources. Or how about this? Spend that time in the Word, and I encourage you. I encourage you to spend time in the Word. In fact, um, here it is. It's December 17th, just a few more weeks left in this year, and I encourage you, um, if you're not already doing so, start reading the Bible. Start reading it right now, and, and so that what, by the time you get into the new year, you're already up and running, and, and spend time in God's Word every day. I encourage you to do that, because that's spiritual food. By the way, if the only spiritual food you're getting is on Sundays, you will starve. Do you know if you only eat once a week, you will die? Even if you eat a whole lot, you'll die. Well, yeah, but I really ate gaga lot. It was really great on Sunday. I got a lot of food. It was really good. Man, that was just like, wow, that was so good in that Sunday school class. It was so good in that message. It was so great in that, that ministry. Well, if you do that, that's great, but you will starve in between. So let's say that you're up and you're reading God's Word and you're getting into His Word, and sometimes it's just like, oh, it's just really good. You know, it's just really powerful. And then other times it's absolutely amazing. But let's say you're reading through the Word and the Holy Spirit calls you to do something that you've never done before. I mean, all of a sudden, it's like it lifts off the page and you're supposed to do this. It's like, wow, that is hard. I've never done that before. And it stretches us and it makes us uncomfortable. And we're tempted to resist. Again, not always aggressively, but we can do it passively. We won't throw our hand up against Jesus and say, I won't do it and strike me dead first or something like that. No, instead we just go, okay, thank you, Lord, hallelujah. I think I'm just going to pray a little bit more until that feeling goes away. Or I'm just going to go about my day and not do that. And we can passively resist because our, our world and the life we have carefully constructed and the comfort that we have built in is is somehow threatened in a little way. You say, I can't do that. I won't go there. I won't do that. I, I can't. I find myself a little bit sometimes like Herod who says, wait a minute. Are you threatening that? Oh no, not there. Sometimes, let me say this, sometimes he can expose can I say this? He, he can expose a stinky attitude that we're carrying around. Um, I was going to ask if, you know, how many have ever had one? I'm not going to ask that. How many have ever, we'll make it real easy for you. This is going to be, this is like a softball underhand. Ready? How many have ever known anybody with a stinky attitude? Let me see your hands. Isn't that easy? Thank you. Thank you. All of you who just raised your hands. You know, we can carry around stinky attitudes. We can carry around stuff that we've picked up. And, and we smelled a little bit, but the people around, have you ever noticed that? When you smell bad, you kind of get used to it, but the other people around you are going, wow. I grew up milking a cow every morning and every night, and I never smelled that cow, but, but my friends, my friends uh, would call, they start in my youth group, saw, hey, hey, stinky, they would call me stinky. I didn't smell it. I asked my dad about it one time. I said, they think I smell my, you know what my dad said? He said, that smells like money. That's what he said, you know, right? Yeah, that's what cattle ranchers say. It smells like money. <laughs> I didn't smell it. 
from that point on, I cleaned my shoes before I went to church all the time, but I, I didn't smell it. Sometimes we can carry around attitudes that are really stinky and really noxious, and people around us, they see it and we don't. And the Holy Spirit says, you've got a stinky attitude, deal with it, get rid of it. We say, I don't want to, I'm going to hold on to that. A couple weeks ago, my wife, and, I'm, I'm, and, I, and I say this absolutely, I'm so grateful for my wife, I really am. I'm so grateful for, that we get to go through life together, and one of the reasons that I'm grateful is she calls me on things sometimes. A couple weeks ago, she said, you know, you've got a stinky attitude. I mean, in, in so many words, she said that. You've got a stinky attitude. And, and I don't think I said it, but here's what I thought. I have a right to that stinky attitude. Anyone else ever, you know? I have a right to that stinky attitude. I earned that stinky, I I paid a high price for that stinky attitude. She says, you have a stinky attitude. And if you're not careful, it's going to affect other people because you're a leader. So you just need to deal with your stinky attitude. The Holy Spirit, it it was a confirmation actually to what the Holy Spirit was saying. So you deal with the stinky attitude. But I don't want to because I want to hold on to it, right? No, that's, that's, a part of my, that's part of my little kingdom. That's a part of my little stinky kingdom, but it's my kingdom. I'm not going to let loose of that. Sometimes we have to lay that down. We don't want to let it go. But when His kingdom advances, and I want it to advance in me, and I want His kingdom to advance in you, When his kingdom advances in us, other kingdoms, large and small, must surrender and fall. There are things that have been in my life, there have been things that are in your life, that that he comes up and his kingdom is growing, and he's doing this amazing thing in us, and and it starts so small, kind of like a little baby in Bethlehem. It may have started small with a prayer months ago or years ago. Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins. I surrender my life to you. Become my Lord and my Savior. And if you pray that kind of a prayer in sincerity, as I prayed with a man a few months ago, when you do that, it starts out so small, but it doesn't stay small. It becomes big. So what almost no one except a few shepherds and some angels all of heaven, and, and Joseph and Mary, shepherds and Joseph and Mary, they were the only ones who knew what happened that night. Even the people next door in the filled up inn didn't know that God came in that place that night. He started so small, but he's big now. Everyone knows about, not everyone knows about him, but oh, he, around this world he's known. And throughout history he's known. And multiple millions And millions and millions of lives, no. But it started out so small. What began small in you did not stay small. He wants to do greater and greater things. But I warn you, as he grows in you, he will encounter, his kingdom will encounter kingdoms within you and me that will feel threatened. And when that happens, we need to say, oh Lord, I surrender that kingdom to you. I give that to you. I want, I want to be consumed by you. I want to be so consumed by you that when you come for me, either through your return or th- you come for me through my death, 
that there's nothing left. It's just, it's you. It's all you. Your kingdom in me. I want to pray with you this morning. In fact, I'm going to ask our musicians if they'll go ahead and make their way up. I want to sing that song, What a Wonderful name it is. There's some lines in there about kingdoms. I want us to sing again. And this is going to be, I'm telling you right now, this is going to be a time where we, where we loudly declare His praises. I want it to be a time, an altar time, maybe unlike one that you've encountered, where we ask Him to do a work in us, but we do so as we're praising Him. This morning, I believe that God wants to do an unprecedented work, unprecedented in your history, unprecedented in your experience. There's not a person here, listen to me, listen to me. There's not a person here this morning that God does not want to do something amazing in your life. Every person here, He wants to use you to do things and to say things that just a few months or a few years ago, you would have said, never, it could never happen. But it can happen because he is great within us. Because the kingdoms within me have surrendered to his kingdom. Because I'm no longer passively or aggressively resisting. I'm saying, God, you do a work in me. I'd like you to stand, please. And I want you to get your voices ready. Let's go ahead and put that up there. Thank you, Bobby. We're going to sing this together. You were the Word at the beginning, one with God, the Lord Most High. Your hidden glory in creation now revealed in you, our Christ. Go ahead and put the next one up there. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. Put the next verse up there. Nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is. The next one, you didn't want heaven without us, so you brought heaven down. The next line, my sin was great, your love was greater. What could separate us now? This morning, I want you to sing this out. I want you to declare it. And as you're doing that, here's what I, I'm trusting will happen. As you're praising the kingdoms that you have maybe assembled or protected, the the ways in which the kingdom of God expanding your life has resisted, that those defenses will be broken down. If you want that, then I want you to sing this song. If you don't want that, you continue resisting, but you're the loser. By the way, it says in the text that we read, and when Herod died. Herod, for a time, was one of the most powerful people in that region of the world. The things that he accomplished are still remembered 2,000 years later. But in eternity, he will be a speck at best. He will be an unpleasant memory in the annals of human history. But what Jesus does is eternal. Let me say it again. What Jesus does is eternal. If you want that, then I want you to sing this song. I want you to sing it out. What a wonderful name it is. Let's sing it together. You were the word at the beginning. You were the word at the beginning. One with God, the Lord most high. Your hidden glory in creation. 
silence the boast of sin and grave the heavens are roaring the praise of your glory for you are raised to life again you have no rival yours is the glory yours is the name above all names what a powerful name it is what a powerful name it is the name of Jesus Christ my King let's sing that again let's sing that part together this morning lift up your voices The boast of sin and grace. Lift up your voices. The heavens are singing. The praise of your glory. For you are raised to life again. You have no rivals. No rivals. You have no equals. Yours is the glory, glory to you, God. Yours. 
Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, these altars, of course, are open. God bless you this morning. 